Our Heavenly Father, we know that you speak through your word. And so as we open it up and immerse ourselves in it, will you speak to us? Will you, will you overwhelm us today by your spirit so we can understand the flood and its testimony to your grace? Father, speak to us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, last week we began thinking about the flood story and we looked at it from God's perspective. So rather than seeing the earth flourishing in the way that God had planned, rather than seeing the world enjoying his blessings and, and being fruitful and multiplying, instead the only multiplication that God saw was the multiplication of wickedness. Um, and so we saw these verses that were very disturbing. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And so reading on, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I've made them. That's where we left the story out last week. It's a very sobering place to end a sermon. And it's a sobering reminder of the seriousness of sin. Sin was so bad that God decided to uncreate creation. Uh, and I know many people object to the idea of God's judgment. Uh, and you might have found yourself in a conversation where God is accused of being vindictive or bloodthirsty or cruel. You know, as you, you read this story, all of the people on earth died except for those few on the boat. How do you come at that? So I just want to spend a moment reflecting on the theme of judgment um, and to equip us as a church to engage in some of those difficult conversations. So remember last week or a few weeks ago, we spoke about anger and the anger of Cain where he killed his brother. It was anger that was unjustified and it was uncontrolled and it was unconscionable. And it was anger that came from a place of sin. Well, God's anger at humanity's sin, it's not like Cain's anger. See, God's anger is justifiable. So listen to chapter 6, verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And we were watching um, the Wallabies beat the All Blacks rugby, if you don't know, a couple of years ago. It's been a while. And um, <laughs> it, was a rare, it was a rare occasion. But in this game, there were two red cards. Two people got sent off for high tackles. Um, the first was a New Zealand player. He just straight around the neck. And, well, we all cried out for blood. You know, give him a red card and off he got sent. And then about three minutes later, one of the Aussie players did exactly the same. And you knew that he had to get sent off, didn't he? That was only justice. Well, God's anger is justice. See, God's anger at sin, it's a reflection of how he created the world. Sin is this interruption into the good order of creation. Uh, and it can't be tolerated. Um, sin spoils the world for everybody. It, it corrupts, it corrodes, and it kills. And this is uh, for God, who is good. Uh, the good God can't let evil run rampant. It would be unfair and unloving if God just let people get away and if he let them do all of these terrible things. And so God's anger at sin, it's a righteous response to evil. But it's not an uncontrolled response. When we come to the New Testament in 1 Peter, we read this, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. God was patient in his 
judgment. He doesn't rush into judgment. The flood's not this snap decision where God makes it and executes it immediately. It's God's slow and considered and measured plan to deal with the radical corruption of the world. And I found myself asking, should God have given people a second chance? You know, well, shouldn't he have given them a second chance? Well, it seems that Noah had actually been warning the world during the long years that it took him to build the ark. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, um, he's called, oh, I didn't have it in there. Uh, he's called a preacher of righteousness. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. And then in uh, Hebrews 11, we see that by faith, Noah condemned the world. It appears that he was speaking to the world about the coming judgment. It's difficult to speak about the coming judgment, isn't it? It's very difficult to speak to the world about condemnation, especially when people don't want to listen. Um, But as a church, we're called to speak the truth in love, however unpopular it might be. And that doesn't mean we're callous. I don't think you should get a soapbox and stand on the corner preaching condemnation. But as we tell the story of the gospel, people do need to understand the seriousness of sin. But we measure that and balance it with the grace of God that brings forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And as we hold it out, there'll be people who hear and receive, and there'll also be those who reject the truth. And I find for me that's one of the hardest things about being a Christian. Um, You watch those people who intellectually understand the gospel message, or so it would seem, but they refuse to accept it. And I guess that's always been the same. So in our 1 Corinthians reading, we read from the Apostle Paul that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Um, As Christians here in Robertson, we're going to preach a foolish message to those who don't know Jesus. Um, We become fools for Christ, and uh, people will accuse us of being I don't know, backwards or foolish or behind the times or whatever it is, but this is an important message. But for those who hear it and believe that same message, to us being saved, it's the power of God, isn't it? So God's judgment, it's never without an offer of grace. And we see God's grace in the story of Noah. In the midst of all of the wickedness, there's one man who found, uh, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's Noah. This is the account of Noah I don't know if he looked like that or not, just a guess. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless amongst the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah, he was like his great-grandfather Enoch, who'd walked faithfully with God. And that set them apart in this world of wickedness. By contrast with the world, Noah is obedient to God. And Noah sets about building the ark when God commands him to do it, even though it must have seemed absurd. Uh, Now, I found out something funny. Beck's not here, is she? Um, There was a film that Beck has never watched, and I'm going to guess that maybe not many people have seen it. Do you ever see that film with, it's called Evan Almighty, with uh, Steve Carell? And it's kind of a Noah story. Um, It's it's silly and comedic. Um, But there was another one with Jim Carrey where he got to be God for a couple of days and found out it's not such an easy job. I think it was a sequel to that. Um, In that movie, everybody laughed at him for building this ark in the middle of California, I think it was. And I reckon it would have been the same for Noah. He builds this ark. Um, Somebody in Bible study this week said, well, of course, it had never rained before. I don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting idea. Was, Was it the first time it ever rained? 
who knows? But Noah sets about building this big, big ark. I assume it took him years to make it. He was telling people why, and they probably laughed at him. But Noah followed God's command. He, he did, by faith, what God had asked him to do. And because of his faith, Noah is counted as righteous by God. And, and this, by the way, this is the first time the word righteous is used in the Bible. It's the first use of it. So God speaks to Noah, he commands him what to do, um, commands him uh, what's coming and says build an ark. So in verse 17 and 18, God says, For I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I'll establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So Noah does what God commands. He builds the ark to God's specifications. Um, You can see them there in Genesis 6. We didn't read them, but the the ark is 300 cubits long. It's about 139 meters, maybe. Um, About that long, about half as wide again, like one and a half football fields. Um, Noah fills it with two of every kind of animal and bird. And if you read on, that's actually seven of some of them, the clean ones, so that there's some animals around to sacrifice at the end. Um, And the mind boggles about how everything's going to fit into this three-storied ark. Um, we, we tried not to discuss it too much in Bible study this week, but you wonder, you know, was it a bit like the TARDIS? You go, you go in and, Doctor Who fans, no? You go in, it's bigger on the inside than the outside. If you read Harry Potter, the charmed tents, where it's a little tent, but you go inside, it's amazing. Who knows? But in God's provision, uh, Noah did everything just as God commanded him, and it was enough. All the animals come, they all go onto the boat, uh, and then I'm going to call this section uncreation and recreation. Um, so Genesis 7, it's the story of the flood itself. Um, God warns Noah that um, the time is near. So Noah enters the ark with his wife and his sons and their wives. And uh, actually you read in ch- chapter 7 verse 16 that it's God who shuts the door behind them. I hadn't, I hadn't picked that up but read that again. It's God who shuts the door. And the rain starts, and then for 40 days and 40 nights it rains. 7-11 um, paints this picture, I think not so much of a rainstorm, but this very cosmic event that's happening, um, the idea of the waters bubbling forth from under the earth. Um, so it says in 7:11, all the springs of the great deep birth burst forth, floodgates of the heaven were opened, and these floodwaters cover the entire earth, we read, even the tallest mountains. And perhaps if you can imagine waters rising above Mount Everest. Wasn't there? there was another Ark movie, wasn't there, where they went to Everest? Uh, 2012, maybe? And they build like big tubey things. It's very cool. All of the earth is covered in water. And we skip over this detail a bit glibly. Everything dies. Everything drowns. Everything that had the breath of life in it dies. Have a look at this. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds, they were wiped from the earth. And only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. It's a pretty horrific image. God's good creation is uncreated. Like in Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth is again covered in water. Do you notice now there's only water and sky? It's just like the very beginning. We're kind of waiting for God's breath, His Spirit, to speak life into this creation again. 
And then Genesis 7.24 tells us that the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. I first spoke on this passage in the middle of the pandemic three years ago. Do you remember that? So much of our lives were uncreated in 2020. And for months and perhaps even years, for some of us, we lived with uncertainty about when it would, when it would finish and when it would go back to normal. And I wonder if Noah and his family had those same conversations that we all had. How long will we be stuck here? How long will we be isolated? I, I wish everything was like it was before. See, when you're waiting for the floodwaters to go down, there's nothing you can do but to wait on God in his timing. There's nothing you can do but to wait on the the Lord and keep walking by faith like Noah did. And so I wonder if you have floodwaters in your life right now, if all sorts of troubles are swirling around, are you walking by faith? How is your faith right now? Are you trusting? Are you waiting? Are you trusting that God's at work below the surface? moving in ways that you can't see and ways that you can't imagine because God is at work and he always has been, hasn't he? Chapter 7 ends with the floodwaters covering the earth for 150 days and in chapter 8 you get the central message of the story, uh, the flood story. Um, And if I was still a school teacher, I'd tell you, you should remember this part because it's going to be in the test. Uh, There won't be a test because I'm not a teacher, but if you really want, I can give you a pop quiz afterwards. But I want you to remember 8 verse 1 because I think this is the heart of the flood narrative. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. This verse tells us that God has not forgotten us. God will not forget us. God is faithful to his covenant And to his promises, he's faithful to rescue us from the swirling waters when we walk with him by faith. God has not forgotten us. And the rest of Genesis 8 and 9, it's this story of recreation. Even while Noah is counting the 150 days of the flood, God is already at work causing the waters to recede. God sends a wind over the earth, 8 verse 1. Just like his breath had blown over creation at the beginning, God speaks again and he separates water and land and he causes vegetation to grow again. And all the while, Noah and his family, they're sitting in the ark. Perhaps they couldn't see much of this. It was beyond them. Do you remember? He sent the bird out. Couldn't see it happening, but it was happening. Maybe just beyond his eyesight. I was sitting in the ark. Um, apparently, it touched down on the mountains of Ararat on the 150th day, but they had to wait another seven months before God opened the doors and let them out. They spent a little over a year in the ark. Some of us spent a year at home, didn't we, during the pandemic? It's certainly in America, uh, one of our kids did. Well, eventually, the time came for them to make this fresh start. And just like God had uncreated and recreated the world, we we live in hope that Noah's family will walk out of the ark recreated also, that the flood and and what they witnessed would rekindle in them a passion for God and, and, and desire to walk with him just like Noah did. And the first signs in chapter 8 are good. And they all leave the boat, the animals scurry off. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. He sacrifices some of the birds and the animals. And the offering is pleasing to the Lord. And we get this glimpse into God's intimate perspective on the flood in 8 verse 21. And we get to hear what God thinks about it in his own heart. Have a look at 8 verse 21. 
So the Lord smelled this pleasing aroma from the offering that Noah had made. And he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So God decides in his own heart that he'll never again bring the same kind of judgment on all the earth as long as the earth exists. Not because the flood has fixed the problem. Did you notice that there? The flood has not fixed the problem of the human heart. Even after the flood, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. It'll take more than a flood to change the, year, a flood to change the human heart. But, but God decides that nothing will change his heart. No amount of human sinfulness will ever again cause him to bring the kind of judgment that he did in the flood. Instead, God promises to be gracious and patient with humanity. And as we read through the book of Genesis, one of the questions raised is about who will be the serpent crusher um, from Genesis chapter 3.15. Who's going to be this one who would crush the head of the serpent, even as the, the serpent struck his heel? Who would be the one who brings salvation and defeats sin? And so when we read the Noah story, we might be tempted to think that Noah is the chosen one. After all, God did choose Noah to, to, to save him. God chose to save him because of his righteousness and his faith. And then he, he makes this offering that God finds acceptable. So should we see Noah as the sinless savior who fixes the problem of the human heart? Well, a bit like Titanic, I think you know the ending to the story. And perhaps you know the Colin song too. Um, <laughs> the death crusher is not Noah. See, the answer is that Noah and his sons, they don't go ahead and rebuild the world in godliness. As sons of Adam, they're tainted with the same heart disease that can't be cleansed by a year on a yacht. All right, a year on a boat is not going to fix the problem of human sin. Read on in Genesis 9, Noah gets drunk from wine that he made and he falls asleep uncovered and something inappropriate happens with one of his sons. And we're spared the details, but the point is clear. Noah and his sons, they're not the solution to ungodliness. They need salvation just as much as you and I do. And the rest of the Bible then is taken up with this search for a saviour. And we'll come to the next chapter of that search when we come to the Abraham story next year. But at this point in the Bible, Noah and his family, they don't know how God will save them. They just have to take him at his word. They just have to trust the promises and the covenant that he makes with them. His promise sealed with his sign of a rainbow, that he will never again cause the earth to be covered with water. And this is the first covenant in the Bible, by the way, not the last one. Um, our God is a covenant-making God. And that is, he's a God who makes promises to us, promises that he will never break. And the first covenant, the rainbow, it's a symbol of hope that, that lies outside of human control. We can't make it happen. But in the rainbow, God speaks the words of the covenant to this world that he knows is still broken. God speaks a word of hope to people who are hopeless. He speaks a word of grace where grace is not deserved. And with the rainbow, God paints this picture of salvation that will one day come through the greater Noah as Jesus saves his people from the waters of death by his faithful obedience and his atoning sacrifice. And I reckon that's a promise to hold on to in the flood. So why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that we know so well, but thank you that we're reminded of your grace in the flood, 
Father, there might be some of us today who are in the middle of a flood with swirling waters raging around us, all the storms of life coming at us. Heavenly Father, help us to have deep faith and trust in you. We pray that you be with us in our health problems and our personal problems and our relational problems. Pray that you be with us in all the areas where we're, we're finding difficulty. Father, for those of us who are struggling with faith, we ask that you'd give us deep faith in Jesus. Help us to look to the rainbow. Help us look to Jesus and to remember that you are for us and not against us. So Lord, today by your Holy Spirit, would you blow that wind of breath, that breath of life into our hearts and recreate us to be like the Lord Jesus and to trust him more and more. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, I think we're going to stand and sing.